Um, I want to start uh, just with something that I've, that I've been learning through the book of Isaiah, but also just the scriptures have pressed this into me, especially over the course of the past year. Um, kings tend to be bad. Just, just happens often. Israel was never supposed to have a king, and all kings seem to do in the scriptures are lead the people into idolatry or oppress them or involve them in wars. But most importantly, they often, they, 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 they often distract the people from their true king, the God who saved them from Egypt. And in this text, we're going to meet the end of the story of King Hezekiah, who's, who's described in 2 Kings as one of the good ones. 2 Kings 18.5 says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him, and so on and so forth. Great things about Hezekiah. And so I read this and I thought, well, maybe Hezekiah is an exception. Maybe I can love Hezekiah from birth to death. Nope. And we're going to find out why uh, as we look through this text, and we're going to find a temptation that we actually ought to all be on guard against. So let's, let's just walk through these two chapters. We read chapter 39. I'm just going to, just going to let you know what happens uh, in chapter 38. So if you're, if you're new, for the past eight months, we've been preaching through the book of Isaiah. We're like 39 chapters in. There's 66. We're like halfway there. It's great. What Isaiah has done, Isaiah, Isaiah as a prophet, is preaching to the people of God that if they don't turn from their idolatry and their exploitation of the poor, then there are going to be devastating consequences. But what we know from the first chapters of the book is that the people aren't going to turn and the kings are not going to turn. And so the consequences are going to come. And so in, this, in these first 39 chapters, what we get is this kind of ominous foreshadowing of what the people of God are going to endure. We're going to get there. So in, in chapter 38, it's an interesting chapter. I'll summarize it briefly. So it begins with Hezekiah who's sick to the point of death, and he gets a word from the Lord through Isaiah that he's going to die. And so what does Hezekiah do? He prays. In Isaiah 38.3, he says, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And what does God do? God listens. Remember, I said a few weeks ago, prayer, prayer does stuff. It can, it can even change a previous decree of God. That's what this text says. God tells Hezekiah, okay, I'll heal you. You get 15 more years, and I'm going to protect you from Assyria. And so, and so the Lord works a, works a miracle with the, with the sun. It's, it's, all, it's, it's, it's wonderful. But he also, he also tells Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, here, here's a, here's a poultice of figs for your boil. Apparently, he has some disease with boils. And then half of the chapter is Hezekiah writing a song of thanksgiving. And so all of this seems pretty innocent. Big picture, good king, gets sick, asks the Lord to heal him. Lord heals him. Great. The bad news is that that's not the end of Hezekiah's story. Because often our stories are not just about our healings. They're about what we do with our healings. And that's what we see in chapter 39. So in chapter 39, we're introduced to a character that's new to us, but not new to the readers of the text. We're introduced to Babylon. Chapter 39, verse 1. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and his recovery. Now, if you thought Assyria was bad, Babylon is worse. 
because of what they're going to eventually do to the people of God. So after, so what, so, 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 so what, what Babylon is going to do is take the people into exile, which means the people are going to lose their land, they're going to lose their king, and they're going to lose their temple. All these things that they, that they found their identity in. The closest comparable that I can think of in my mind is the way that West African nations probably thought about the Portuguese in the 15th century. For those who aren't aware, the transatlantic slave trade, the source of what we now know as race or ra- and, and racism, began back in the 15th century with the Portuguese seeking cheap sources of labor. And so they stole people from West Africa. Now imagine these nations in the centuries following hearing the histories of their kings, and then they hear the words, and then the Portuguese came. There's probably an immediate reaction. It's like, wait a minute. Wait, the the Portuguese, this is not going to end well. Hezekiah, though, is blissfully unaware. In chapter 39, verse 2, it says this, Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory. He even showed them the olive oil. His entire armory. And everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace and in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. This is like a neighbor who you really want to be friends with but like don't know at all. Coming to your house with a gift and the first thing you do is you bring them in and you show them your security system and your bank accounts. Hezekiah is like, look, let me, let me show them how great of an ally I would be. Babylon's like, oh, oh, we're going we to have some fun with this dude. And, and, you can, and you can even hear, you can even hear the realization in verses 3 and 4. As you all know, I think, I think tone is really important in biblical dialogue. Uh, tone and pauses. So let's hear, let's hear verses 3 and 4 again. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did, what did those men say and where did they, where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they, they came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what, what did they see in your palace? They, they saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. They, there, there's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. So Isaiah then tells Hezekiah what the future of the nation is going to be. In verses 6 and 7, he says, the time will surely come when everything in your palace all this stuff that you showed them, and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So so not only is this terrible for the people, but it's also deeply shameful for the king. He's told that his own descendants are going to be castrated and kept as Babylonian slaves. Which makes Hezekiah's reaction in verse 8 kind of weird. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. In other words, ah, it's going to be tough to come after me, but at least I'm good. These are words of selfishness. Words of narcissism, these are, this is in the face of mind-shattering disaster for, for everyone around you, not just everyone around you, but everyone for whom you are responsible. Your first thought is, well, at least I'm good. Now, you may think that that interpretation is needlessly dark. 
But I want us to think about this in the context of the book and in the context of the entirety of the scriptures. Remember, kings are not heroes. Even if 2 Kings describes Hezekiah as one of the good kings, what that really means is Hezekiah is not an outright idolater. The bad kings, when you, when you, when you go through the books, the, the books of the kings, the bad kings are the kings who turn the people away from the Lord, and the good kings are the ones who attempt to turn them toward the Lord. But every so-called good king in Israel's history has serious, serious sin. David rape and murder, Solomon, greed and polygamy. If you read 1 Kings 10, you find Solomon accumulating not just gold, but chariots and horses. And we're told in Deuteronomy 17, 16 to 17, that the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. You must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Solomon does all these things. If David and Solomon have issues, you can't trust any of the kings. But the issue here is deeper. And I sum it up this way. Self-interest is a creeping temptation. In in just that previous chapter, chapter 38, we have what, what seems to be the work of a righteous king. But chapter 38 doesn't actually tell us anything about Hezekiah's character. He's sick. He asks God to heal him. God does, and he's thankful. Okay, but the question is, where does he go from there? The same question could be asked of you and I. If the Lord delivers you, if the Lord saves you, if the Lord heals you, of course the first response ought to be to thank him. That seems obvious. But the question is, what do you do after that? In this case, when when Babylon, a foreign nation who Hezekiah wanted to impress, showed up with a gift to congratulate him on the Lord's work in his life, his first response was, how can this politically benefit me? I know. I'll show them how great of an ally I can be. I'll show them my weapons and and my riches. Nobody asked Hezekiah to do that. He chose to, likely because he wanted to flex. And brothers and sisters, this is one of, our, one of our foremost temptations, to see the blessings and the salvation of God as saying something about us rather than saying something about who the Lord is. Because the Lord saving you and I is a sign of his grace, not of our awesomeness. So there may be some of us here who have been suffering for a while, who may have been sick for a while, who may have been praying to the Lord to heal you for a while, there may, be, there, there, may be, there may be some of us here who have who've been, who've, who've been struggling with our children for a while and have been praying for a while and, 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 and have just been saying, Lord, deliver me. And maybe the Lord has said, not yet. And the temptation is going to be to think, well, clearly the Lord doesn't care. I want you to think about that in a slightly different way. Maybe it's the case that the Lord has opportunities for you to love someone else in the midst of your suffering. That is ways that only you can love those people because you are suffering in this particular way. Sometimes the Lord uses circumstances like that for his glory. Sometimes he heals you for his glory, but sometimes he doesn't heal you for that same glory. 
Sometimes he wants to, some, 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 sometimes, this is, this is why it's really, it's, it, it, actually cuts, it actually cuts to the heart when Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Sometimes, we're, some, sometimes the Lord tests us whether or not we actually believe it's more blessed to be a blessing than to be blessed. But this is something that the Lord has to constantly remind his people of. And it's one of our most significant temptations. It's thinking that, the Lord, that having the Lord of the universe on our side is a reason to be puffed up. In Deuteronomy 8, God tells his people the goodness of the land that he's going to bring them to. Verses 7 to 10, amazing. He says this, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs, gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord, your God, for the good land he has given you. That's an amazing picture. It's like the picture of what the Lord has promised to do for us when we repent of our sin and turn to him. He promises to listen to our prayers, to gather a people called the church around us as a new family, to to imbue us with power and peace, to equip us to live lives of joy. But in Deuteronomy 8, he quickly follows up that picture of blessing with a warning that's worthy, I think, of being read in its entirety. These are verses 12 to 19. If we don't thank the Lord... He says, otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. You see, the Lord blesses and heals because he loves you, yes, but he also loves his people. And our first impulse, always, dear brother, dear sister, maybe it's just me, I think it's a lot of us, our first impulse is to interpret our lives through the lens of self-interest. What does this mean for me? How does this benefit me? And this is what we're seeing in Hezekiah's response at the end of chapter 39. Well, at least I'll be good in my lifetime. Some of us think this way, for example, uh, about about the environment. It doesn't matter really what I do. I'll still be alive. Now, you know, I, I don't think your household is to blame for the climate crisis. I think our broader economy is. But that doesn't mean don't be, that doesn't don't, that doesn't mean don't be conscientious about the resources that you use. The gift that the Lord has given us is to be stewarded well. To think, well, I'll be fine, is selfish. But it's bigger than that. A lot of us don't think about that on a daily basis. This this thought, at least things will be fine for me, pops into our minds in other everyday situations. Pops into our minds when our coworker gets laid off. When someone else's kids are out of control, when our neighbors and our brothers or sisters suffer, some of our first thoughts are, ah, that's rough. 
At least it's not happening to me. When a coworker, something happens to a coworker because they stick their neck out for somebody else, our first thought can be, well, now I know what not to do because that's going to get me in trouble. When we think those things, we are not unlike Hezekiah. And so, the Apostle Paul has a word for us that he repeats twice in his letters. It's a word that points us back to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. He says it in 1 Corinthians 10.24, and he says it again in Philippians 2.4. And it sums up what we could call the way of Christ. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's reminding the Corinthians that, that Christ has set us free from bondage to sin. And, but, but see, when we think about freedom often what we call libertarian freedom, we're often thinking in terms of the freedom to do whatever we want. We might think that rules get in the way of our freedom. Other people get in the way of our freedom. Real freedom, we might think, is to be unencumbered, to not have to worry about other people, to not be held back by other people. But that is not the way that freedom is described in Christ. Paul defines our freedom in this way. We confessed it earlier, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, and 24. He, he repeats this Corinthian slogan, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now, that is a very stark statement, and it prompts a lot of whatabouts. But if you, think, if, you, if you think about those whatabouts, you will recognize in your own mind that your most prominent whatabout is what about me? What about me? And part of the Christian life is a constant redirection of that voice. Now, you could think that this is just something extreme that, that Paul's saying to the Corinthians because, you know, he, the, the Corinthians are always messing up. So sometimes Paul might say extreme things, you know, to get the, get the Corinthians back in line. Uh-uh-uh. Because he says it in his most joyful letter, too, his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 2.4, he says, Let each of you look not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. There it is again. And he's not under duress this time. I mean, he's in, he's in prison, but, like, but he's, no, one's, no one's forcing him to say this. This is just what Paul thinks the Christian life is. But why might he think that? Because this is the primary picture of Christ in the scriptures. The incarnation, the Son of God taking on flesh, is this act of self-giving. Christ, Christ sacrifices the privileges and the comfort of being in the constant presence of his Father and of the Spirit. And, and he takes on human flesh to face temptation, to suffer pain, to suffer disappointment, to suffer loss. Not for his own good, but for yours. When he goes through his earthly ministry and he, and he, and he heals, whether it's, whether it's a blind man, whether it's a woman with an issue of blood, whether it's a man who's unable to walk, whether it's a young girl who has died, he doesn't do that to pump himself up. He does so because he genuinely wanted and wants people to be whole. But the, but the other thing is, is that whenever people have an encounter with this Jesus... It also makes them into that same kind of person. I think about, I think, I, 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 I think about when Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, who's a, who's a tax collector, who essentially makes his living off of the exploitation of the poor. And after, his, and, and after his encounter with Jesus, he's like, oh, not only do I have to give back what I've stolen, I need to give it back fourfold. 
Because when I encounter Jesus, I'm reminded I'm not the one who matters. I need to be pouring myself out for my neighbor. But there is no act that sums that up more than Christ's death. The very act of Christ that in the scriptures is the definition of love. Jesus says it himself in John 15, 12, and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. Resistance to self-interest is not just a nice thing to do. It's literally Jesus' commandment. And it's a key that I think unlocks these two chapters, helps us understand both Hezekiah and the coming fate of the people of Israel. Second Kings may offer this positive summary of Hezekiah, but, 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 but self-interest lurks behind both of these chapters. It could be the case that Hezekiah just prays for healing because he doesn't want to die. It could be the case, but it's definitely out of self-interest that he shows Babylon everything that he's got. And it's ultimately because the people of God forgot that their primary mandate was to be holy and set apart from the nations, that they're supposed to operate in a way that bears witness to the nations that there's a different way, of, way, way to live, a way, a, way, a, a, a way where selfishness is not present, where exploitation is not present. But no, 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 no. But they, but they forget that and essentially get, get drawn into greed and exploitation and idolatry and all of those things because of their own self-interest. They get caught up in that, and God judges them through exile. He removes all of the things that were the sources of their pride, of their comfort, and of their security. Sources of, of their saying, hey, look how awesome we are. Exile at the hands of Babylon is going to cut all of that off and force the people back into a position of humility. But that's not the end of the story of the people of God. Because just like, just like the Lord's salvation is for a purpose, his discipline is also for a purpose. Both the Lord's salvation and his discipline are meant to point us back to him, back to God's grace, back to God's mercy. And one of the most important questions that we can ask and answer is, what am I going to do with my healing? What am I going to do with my salvation? Am I going to see God's love for me as just license to do whatever I want? Am I going to see God's salvation as a reason for me to boast in my health or my gifts or whatever? That's what Hezekiah did. But that's not the way of Christ. If we're to follow the way of our Savior, it means that we put everything through the lens of that great commandment, to love our brothers and sisters as he has loved us. It means we set others' interests above our own. I'm prepping for, uh, I'm, I, get to do, I get to do a wedding two weeks, and I, and, and, and I think about what Paul says to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 about mutual submission and all this, but, but that text, what that text is not saying is that marriage bears witness to the world this ideal picture of authority and submission. What Paul is saying is that Christians in marriage bear, bear witness to the world, a relationship of two people who are constantly seeking to outdo one another in Christ-likeness. Where the husband and wife are more devoted to one another's needs than they are their own. And this isn't just about marriage. This is about, this is about uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that all of, our, all of our close relationships, one of the main things that close relationships do is they reveal our selfishness. Once someone else needs me, my time is not my own. 
and they become an inconvenience. Look, I know I'm not the only one who has thought this. I think about whether it's, whether it's with my wonderful wife who I love deeply or with my kids. They want my time and my attention. And I want to do the stuff I want to do. And sometimes that makes me upset. <laughs> Does this happen to anybody else? Okay. We're selfish. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And brothers and sisters, one of the things that even the way that, even the way that friendship is supposed to be, it's supposed to have the character of people who are willing to inconvenience themselves for one another, willing to suffer for one another. And the fact is that, the, that the, what the church community is supposed to be is a community of people who, by the Holy Spirit, are living that kind of life where everybody gets cared for because everybody's concerned with caring for everybody else. So this is not, this is not, co, this is not codependence, where one person is constantly giving and the other person is constantly taking. That's unhealthy. But there may be seasons in your life where you do more giving than taking and more taking than giving. That's fine. That happens. There are seasons. But that's not the norm. The norm that we have to understand is that this, look, self-interest kills. Me being constantly focused on me as though I'm the only one who can meet my own needs and all that kind of stuff, that leads to despair. But when everyone's focused on caring about the interests of everybody else, everybody gets fed. And so while everyone and everything in the world may be bearing in on you, encouraging you to get yours, do you, self-actualize, focus on, focus on you, the gospel says to turn to your neighbor. Christ's life, Christ's death, and Christ's resurrection bear witness not just to what, what, what real humanity is, but what the divine life is. It's Trinity Sunday. We believe that God has revealed himself in three persons, but still yet one God, that, that this mystical unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a unity of love, particularly a love where they share everything with one another. In John 5, Jesus says that he does nothing on his own. He just does what he sees the Father doing. And the Spirit, whom the Father and Son send, does the same thing. He just does what the Son and the Father do. And the invitation from this triune God is an invitation into that kind of life. An invitation into a life of self-giving love, of other-centered service, a, a life of power, a life of peace, and a life of of provision. The, Peter, Peter says it in this mind-blowing way. He says, by God's promises, we have an opportunity to participate in the divine nature. That means that the Holy Spirit makes us like God. And one of those ways is in denial of our own self-interest in, in order to love our neighbors, brothers and sisters, especially those in need. So, so as, you, as, you go forward, as you go forward, particularly this week, I want to challenge us. When we, when we pray to the Lord, whenever that happens, but end of the day is a, good, is a good time. To reflect on your day. To reflect on, to, to reflect on the ways that the, that, that the Spirit enabled you to set someone else's interests above your own. Now, I want you to be careful because there, this is something that we can also do. We can also uh, we can set others' interests above our own 
in ways that we know benefit us. For example, you know, let me, let me do this thing, let, let, me, let, let, let me do this thing that, that I know that my spouse wants because there's something I want out of them. That is not self-giving love. That is, well, in its worst, that can be, that can be manipulation. Seek someone's good purely for their good, regardless of how it's going to affect you. Because one of the things, because, 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 because I, think, I think one of the things that, we, that, we, that, that really needs to be driven deep into our souls is a belief that God is actually going to take care of our needs. And, that's, and it, it, it is only when we know that to be true that we can actually seek to pour ourselves out for our brothers and sisters. Because the main thing that holds us back is fear. What about me? What about me? And so it could be the case that like the most comforting thing that we could hear is, well, I'll be fine in my lifetime. It's not going to work, brothers and sisters. These last few chapters of Isaiah, where we end Hezekiah's story, and we're introduced to the real big bad of the book, Babylon, gives us a historical look into the fall of Judah. But it also reminds us of the devastating risk that self-interest poses to us. Hezekiah was a great king, but near the end of his life, this, 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 self, this self-focus took hold of him, leading to the last words that we get from him. At least there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Let that not be so with us. My prayer for us is that we, we would be a people who leave the spaces where we enter better than we found them. That, 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 that through our other-centered lives, that we would leave people more loved than we found them, more cared for and less in need, that, that we would not be a people who squander our salvation, who waste our healing, but rather a people who, in light of what God has done for us in Christ, seek to be beacons of grace and mercy wherever we go. As people who are bound to Christ by His Spirit, may that same Spirit bind us to one another. May we look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Let's pray.